I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. As CEO of Beasley, Adrian Cox runs one of our sector's fastest-moving and best-rated insurance businesses. And so any time I can get him behind a microphone and talking to me is time well spent. In the past year, this firm has pioneered the placement of cyber cat bonds, undergone a major restructure with the formation of a US excess and surplus lines insurance company, and made the most of new underwriting opportunities being thrown up in North American property by more than doubling its underwriting volume there. In this podcast, we talk about all these things and an awful lot more. Adrian is excellent company and exudes the kind of confidence that senior brokers complain that they sometimes find lacking in the modern insurance and reinsurance market. In our talk, we get a clear sense of Adrian's insurance philosophy. Here is someone with a clear way of understanding the insurance world and the confidence and authority to go and execute when he feels the time is right. Given the rare series of opportunities the global market is presenting brave and decisive underwriters in 2024, I can highly recommend a detailed listen. Enjoy the podcast. Adrian, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. Good to be back. Happy New Year to you. And Happy New Year to you, absolutely. So this is a time to take stock, 1-1. All the brokers put out big reports. So I need to ask you, before we move on to other things, let's get all this market stuff out of the way. Now that 1-1's over, obviously you're a buyer and seller of reinsurance. How was it for you? I think we're relatively satisfied with 1-1 from a seller's perspective. Most of the market commentary is relatively uniform about the way that the renewal season went. I think our experience was no different from most. I think on the property cat side, you know, rates were up a little bit, mostly flat, but still adjusting where some adjustments were required, particularly on some of the mutualized insurers in, in the US and parts of Europe, much as we expected. And so we're on track to do what we planned to do originally. So no real surprises there on the property cat side, I don't think. Yeah, so as a buyer, maybe last year would have been more difficult and difficult to know where you were when you're buying your own reinsurance and then selling reinsurance to other people and obviously, you know, when you're protecting your insurance book, this time it was much easier to have ascertained exactly where you were going to be and you've ended up where you sort of expected. Yeah, on the property side, most of the stuff that we buy, we buy in April. So we sort of sell now and buy three months later, which I think was fortunate last year because the market, I think, had reached some sort of balance by then. So it was slightly easier to navigate. A lot of the other reinsurances that we buy, we do buy at 1-1 and they all went pretty well as well. We renewed what we wanted to renew, we bought what we wanted to buy, and we were pleased with what we were able to do. So, you know, relatively happy. So it was a market that was supportive of your growth. You've been growing enormously in property, but at the same time, you've been able to reduce some of your exposure to, say, a one in 10 event at the same time. Obviously, you've got a very diversified portfolio at the same time, but that was very strong growth that we'd seen in your property. So that reinsurance market was able to support that growth. The capacity was there to support that growth ambition of yours. Yeah, I think the adjustment to the reinsurance market that happened last year wasn't really accompanied, I don't think, by any real lack of capacity. I think it was essentially reinsurance is there for the right structures at the right price. And if you're prepared to buy sensibly, then it was there for you. And, you know, I think we're a relatively sensible buyer of of reinsurance. We managed to buy last year at the budget that we had and the structure that we thought we would be able to sustain and were able to do so. So I don't think there are any real shocks last year. As we've talked about before, you know, the really positive thing about the adjustment to the property cap reinsurance market was that it forced sensible buying of reinsurance, which then forces sensible underwriting of insurance. <laughs> and that's the real opportunity. And I think that will persist. Reinsurance is available in sensible structures at sensible prices. And that, I think, enforces good discipline on the insurance side. And 
that's good for everyone. Certainly one of the commentaries, the biggest takeaway would be that, and that's what you alluded to, that there was capital there, but there wasn't necessarily the confidence to put that capital forward. But there was also that discipline. So as you're looking to one four, perhaps for, for your own renewals, do you think, certainly the commentary from the brokers is that they were hoping for some moderation, at least not in structure, but in terms of price by them, because some of those top layers, for example, were quite well oversigned. Yeah, I think the difference between this year and last year, when we look at our inwards portfolio, is the signings were a bit down this year from last year. So I think there was more supply this year, because I think, as you said, there's more confidence in the market now than perhaps there was. Again, as as you said, that hasn't meant that structures have changed or that price adequacy has changed. It's just that there's a bit more available. And I think that's understandable. You're a nimble underwriter. Looking at your investor presentation and that phenomenal growth that you've been able to achieve in property pretty much proves that. It's not just you saying it. Thank you. The other takeaway from, I've just done a 1-1 report program, talking to all the three brokers about the big reports. The client need would be around, particularly in facultative reinsurance, lots of opportunity there, as there's a lot of property per risk programs are coming under pressure. And also anything that is going to help students with their frequency problems with anything that's slightly attritional. As a nimble underwriter, do you think there are opportunities there for you? Because it sounds just like the sort of thing that a Beasley type underwriter might be looking at thinking, you know, there's client need here, there's probably budget for it, and there's probably a good opportunity. So on the faculty side, we buy and sell fact. That's something that, that we've always done. I think there's probably a bit more of that available this year. So that could be quite interesting. On the treaty side, you're absolutely correct. I think the clients and brokers were looking for ways to structure reinsurance that deals with the attritional problems yeah. that were so evident. Yes, you've got a buyer that is having to change structure and is really busy going about re-underwriting their book, their, their own inwards book, but they need time. Obviously, in an on retail insurance, it takes a lot longer than it does on reinsurance. Yeah. So, yes, it certainly seemed there was a big demand for anyone who can step in with something that might help there, that help that transition, particularly over sort of a two or three year period. Yeah. And we're having a number of conversations with brokers and clients about what those structures might look like. I think there is still a dealing between what buyers would like to be able to do and the way that reinsurers are prepared to tackle quasi-attritional issues in terms of second, third, fourth or fifth events and that sort of thing. I have no doubt that over the next year or so, some middle ground will be found so that reinsurers don't find themselves you know, back in the muck and bullets again, but sedents have a way of managing their earnings volatility. But I think the core to that is what you said. That requires the upfront insurance underwriting and aggregate management and portfolio management to be sustainable. And that's not always the case. The other big story, perhaps from Monte Carlo to follow up on at 1-1, was a newfound worry on the part of reinsurers, perhaps, a wariness of casualty. It was big there, big talking point. That was the big thing that had changed in the preceding 12 months. But updating the story now, it would appear that that was just more of a talking point rather than anything else, that there was a reasonably healthy market in casualty reinsurance at 1-1. Is that your experience? Yeah, I mean, it's a debate that we're somewhat on the sidelines of. We're not a big casualty writer. We write liability business, but it's more management of professional liability, yeah. which although it is exposed to social inflation, isn't right at the heart of the casualty issues that are not being discussed. It's not a really big ticket, lots and lots of GL. No, it's not the GL, it's not the commercial auto, it's not the excess casualty or right. umbrella, all that kind of stuff. So we're somewhat at the sidelines of that. A lot of that reinsurance is proportional. So I think a lot of those conversations were around how well the original insurance companies are underwriting that business. And I think 
you're right, less happens than perhaps was speculated. And that's a fear versus greed dynamic. That's the demand versus supply dynamic, isn't it? I, you know, I think the supply of casualty reinsurance was still relatively modest. And I suppose if you can't have a disagreement about casualty reinsurance, what are you going to have well, to disagree? Quite, yeah. So much uncertainty is just fundamentally part of it that you're bound to disagree. Yeah, and it's been a very live topic, hasn't it, for a couple of years now, social inflation, the causes of it and the impact that it's having. And what has added to that, I think, over the last 12 months has been the public realisation that accident years 15 to 19 are not good and continue to deteriorate. And, and what does that mean as we head into 2024? And more in your specialist areas, no, so away from that, that really big picture casualty stuff, you'd mentioned before, and it was on Investor Call or something like that, about another celebrated class that we've been talking about a lot. And there's been a lot of commentary in the marketplace with different words to describe the underwriting behaviour within, this is public DNO. and o you finally twigged. I think we may have guessed that I one. I think you're yep. very diplomatic, Adrian. You, you described it as a working off supply and demand imbalances. You're expecting it to work off those supply and demand imbalances at some point in 2024. So, I mean, there are signs that demand is beginning to pick up. There are signs that transactions are beginning again. People are thinking about IPOing again. And so that supply of new business into the market will pick up, I think, which will help. There's a lot of talk from the top about making sure that rate adequacy remains at the top of underwriters' minds. That does take time, I think, to get out into the field. You know, we're beginning to see signs that rate decreases are starting to moderate, particularly at the primary and low end. But I think the outlook for 2024 in terms of DNO is still uncertain. There's still a lot of supply out there. And the markets, in terms of demand, you know, we're not where we were pre-21. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I'm here to tell you that Aventum Group is a debt-free, owner-managed specialty insurance group headquartered in London. Through our MGA platform Rockstone and broking platform Concilium, the group controls circa $1.5 billion in gross-ridden premiums across 16 global offices. The group is employee-owned, has no private equity backing, and is very much in control of its own destiny. Synergy is Aventum's partnership model, a platform for entrepreneurial brokers and underwriters to become shareholders in their own subsidiary, a platform that liberates trading teams from bureaucracy and admin and allows them to focus on developing and servicing clients. We believe the traditional employee-employer hierarchy is outdated, which is why our Synergy model is built upon trust and partnership and why all our synergy arrangements involve real equity ownership from day one. Very different to the management incentive plans or MIPS that are now so common in our market. We are not a corporate organisation and instead pride ourselves on the entrepreneurialism of our team and ability to have fun along the way. Our view is if you want to build something to call your own, have the lead on how you do it and create some meaningful value along the way, a Synergy partnership will give you an unrivaled route forward. For more information, please contact us at voi at eventumgroup.com today. Doesn't it seem a bit odd that underwriting is not as dynamic, perhaps, as it should be? It's not as necessarily a good look for the industry, is it, that we're saying people have got budgets and they try and fill them like big buckets. No one says, by the way, why are you charging 30% less than you were last year? Shouldn't underwriting be more dynamic? I would sort of hope that it'd be more dynamic at a business like yours. You know what I mean? It is not a good look to say, oh, by the way, we had a 500 million budget, so we're just going to write 500 million at whatever price it ends up being. It doesn't seem very 2024, does it? No, and I don't think it is very 2024. <laughs> and I think that the market has evolved for the good over the last, certainly since the last really, really bad cycle at the end of the 1990s. Insurance is an industry where the cost of what you're selling is unknown when you sell it. 
So no one actually knows what the right price for a given product on a given day is. We estimate it, we use our judgment to assess it, and then we find out how right or wrong we are, depending on the class of business, 12 to 10 years later, 20 years later, right? And it's that uncertainty as to what the exact price is that drives the cycle, I think. And the other feature of insurance is that it's riddled with inertia. Things don't change until the proof is in. And because of that lag between when you've priced your good and you know what the exact cost is, that's why the prices go up and down. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. The market isn't sure what the cost of DNO is. It's coming off the back of some bad years in the late teens, what looked to be some very good years in sort of 19, 20, 21, and judgments as to what the claims of Armad is like today. And that's why you're seeing what you're doing. And when you superimpose on top of that, a relative lack of demand and lots of supply, that's where we are what we are. I think what is better than 20, 30 years ago is the quality of analytics and data that lies behind that judgment, which is why I don't think it'll get anywhere near as bad as it did last time, because people learn more quickly. But you've still got that lag between when you've priced your good and when you know what it ultimately costs. And that's the ultimate reason why there is that cyclicality. And suppose I mean, shutting down the courts for 18 months to, yeah, yeah. is, is yeah, difficult because yeah. you've got a massive gap in that there's data and you huge, don't know what's going to There's a happen. lot of noise in the data. And you know there are lots of people that write it. And that's what makes a market is people have different opinions as to what that price is. So now to sort of deal with the whole market conditions, would you think it's fair to say, just to sort of sum up, that reinsurance, the hardening market is sort of over now? Is it right to say that it probably is over, that your expectations wouldn't be that would be any further price increases? Obviously, with all the usual caveats, obviously, if there's a massive earthquake tomorrow, then obviously bets would be off. But otherwise, all things being equal, given the way things are, given excellent investment returns, given excellent performance, retained earnings, a little bit of an influx of capital, not quite what we had after KRW or after 9-11, but replenishment of capital, certainly. Yeah, there's a few things tucked in that question, aren't there? So there hasn't been an influx of capital, as you say, in the way that there have been after KRW and other like events. I think the insurance and reinsurance industry need to build a track record of success to tempt more capital in at scale. I think it lost some credibility of being able to make money over a cycle. And so one year doesn't make a summer, if that makes sense. But <laughs> there needs to be more of a track record to be able to make money in a complex environment before lots more capital comes in. And the cost of capital is higher because there's more competition for it. So it sounds like the, it's the inertia you already spoke about. A little it? bit, a little bit. And then if you unpick it by class sum, yes, rate increases have moderated on the property cat side. But what has happened, and I think this is a structural shift, is there's a recognition that property catastrophe exposure is much more dynamic and complex than had been appreciated before. And that complexity, I think, will manifest itself in continued discipline and a recognition that writing property cat has a higher cost of capital than before, and that needs to be paid for. So yes, the market's stopped hardening, but there's a recognition that actually property cat needs to be priced properly. And I don't think that's going to go away on the insurance side or on the reinsurance side. So yes, but... And on the casualty side, I think a lot of the debates that happened in the fourth quarter last year were a, gosh, things could get a lot worse, and we're concerned about that. I think what will happen to the casualty reinsurance market will partly depend on whether that happens or not, and if it does, the degree to which that happens, and then the degree to which the reinsurance markets will need to react. So I think it's quite uncertain, actually, as to what's going to happen to the reinsurance markets over the next two to three years, because the underlying claims environments are quite complex themselves. I think that's probably enough market talk for this podcast. Thank you so much for that. Obviously, we last spoke about a year ago, and what a difference a year makes. In that year, you obviously, you've been incredibly busy, but probably the biggest thing that you've done 
is the most fundamental structural change that you've made to Beasley is to form a US excess and surplus science yep. company. Yep. It's all up and running now, isn't it? It's yep. It was writing at 1-1. One, one. Yep. So how's it gone? Well, it's <laughs> we're just past 1-1. One, one. <laughs> no, I, so we're sort of, you know, 11 days into a three to five year process. But there was a lot of work to do last year to get the new company up and running and then to replumb our systems and processes so that we could do that. That's all gone well. So we're beginning to shift our property and our cyber books across to that excess and surplus lines company. The reception that we had from our broker partners and our clients when we talked them through what we planned to do was very good. So we were hoping that our further investment into the US by creating another insurance company there for the ENS market would go down well with our clients and brokers, and it has, so I'm pleased about that. So, so far, so good, but there's a long way to go. I would apologise in advance that you might be tired of explaining Not the rationale right. for this. Just go through it all again, okay. just for the benefit of me and the listeners. Okay. Why have you done it? Why have we done it? So when we started onshore in the US in 2004, we wanted to be able to access both the, the ENS markets and the admitted market. Yep. To access the admitted market, we needed to start our own insurance company, which we did, but we made the decision to access the ENS market using Lloyd's paper. Yep. Because for many reasons, it's a well-established brand, it's an A15 rated carrier, or it was an A15 rated carrier, we were much smaller back then, and it was quicker and easier to do so, and Lloyd's are very supportive. You move forward 20 years, we're now a much bigger entity, we're an A15 carrier ourselves, our brand is well-established in the US, the NS opportunity continues to develop, and then you take a look at the structure in the US, and the fact that we're writing as an MGA in the US, using a Lloyd's service company and accessing the, the Lloyd's balance sheet. And actually, that doesn't make sense anymore. It's overly complicated. And when you've got the balance sheet of, of our size, actually, it makes more sense to use our own balance sheet than to rent Lloyd's balance sheet. And I think investing further in the US with our own ENS company is a good statement of intent for us and our clients on our, on our long-term commitment to the US. So for efficiency's sake, for structural simplicity's sake, and for the fact that the US is an incredibly important market, it made sense to start our own carrier there. And so what we will be doing over the next three to five years is shifting the business that was on the MGA onto our own ENS paper. It has no impact at all on the way that we're doing business, on where we'll be doing business, on our distribution strategy. All that's happening is we're shifting business it's the same from an MGA to our own paper. So our commitment to the London market and the wholesale markets here is completely unchanged. In fact, in many ways, it simplifies the story because if you want Beasley on Lloyd's paper, you come to the wholesale markets. If you want Beasley on Beasley's paper, you access this in the US. It actually clarifies an ambiguity that we've had for a while. So clients can definitely access the Lloyd's paper if they still want that? Yeah, they just come to London or Singapore or Miami. I suppose it effectively shrinking at Lloyd's, does that make it easier because you were a very large player at Lloyd's and you could potentially be constrained at some point? You know, you can't be more than 15% of Lloyd's, can you? So now you've given yourself some more headroom. <laughs> a lot more headroom. <laughs> the scale of our Lloyd's platform wasn't the driving reason for us to do this. The imperative to do this was around simplicity, efficiency, and I think it's a slightly better mousetrap. Okay. And I suppose it is a commitment, isn't it? You've got a US customer and so well, here I am. Here's my balance sheet over here. You can go and visit it in, I think it's in Connecticut, can't you? Yep. If, you if, if you want to, here, exactly. here it is. Here's the money. Exactly. And if you want access at Lloyd's, then you can do that in a traditional way. Obviously... You've set up a US ENS company. You've been in the ENS market forever. Mm -hmm. What's your sense of that market at the moment? We've had this magnificent boom into ENS over this whole market hardening cycle. Do you think that's going to carry on in 24? Yes, I do. And I think there are two reasons for that fundamentally. You know, one is the traditional reason, and then the other, I think, is a, is a little bit more structural. You know, when underwriting needs to change quickly for products, 
it's very difficult to do that in the admitted market. So traditionally speaking, the reaction of admitted insurers when things need to change is to non-renew bits of their business that flows into the NS market. The admitted market adjusts its underwriting, gets approval, and then it flows back into the admitted market again. And you're seeing a bit of that, right? But more fundamentally than that, I think what's also happening is that certain sorts of risks are getting more complex and they're better dealt with in the NS market than they are in the admitted market because you have more freedom to adjust to that complexity as it emerges. And property, as we talked about 10 minutes ago, is more complicated if it's cat exposed. It's not a static risk anymore. It's more complicated. Casualty is more complicated. Social inflation has driven a whole different variety of things that you need to think about. And those are better dealt with in an S market where carriers can react more quickly and be more innovative and entrepreneurial in how they structure and sell insurance. And whilst that complexity continues to manifest and to increase, I think the NS market will continue to grow. And so I don't see that slowing down in, in 2024, no. A lot of it's secular or structural mm-hmm. and not just the ebb and flow that happens. I don't think so. Certainly not in the near term. And it'll be interesting to see how the market adapts to such a big business that property is, how it adapts to the fact that that is a changing risk and a more complicated proposition that has been for a long time. I think that's a challenge. I suppose we're discovering, you know, secondary perils and all these other things, making it more complicated than exactly. we thought it was going to be. Exactly. And obviously, something like cyber, you can't just sort of spin up a war exclusion uh, in, in the admitted market. You've got to go to 50 different regulators and get your policy form changed, haven't you? Well, exactly. Uh, yes. I'm looking forward to not talking about cyber war for a while. Well, that's fair enough. Um, no, I, I, I don't think I put it on my list of questions. But yes, I think we've dealt with that issue and it's working through the market. That's probably the last commentary that you made would say that things are coming into line. I think the market has reached a consensus. And... So by the time we get to the end of this quarter, I think we will have moved on. I think it was an extremely worthwhile period for the market to go through. If nothing else, I think it forced a conversation amongst insurers and their brokers and clients as to what the intention of cyber was. And if that's the only thing it achieves, I think that's a really positive thing. It was a subject that needed to be discussed in the open. It's been done a lot. And so I think intent is a lot clearer than it was 12 months ago. And given those exposures, I think that's a very positive conversation to have before something happens rather than afterwards. And I think we've talked about this before, haven't we, Mark? When we look at the last really unexpected thing that happened, being COVID, the fact that policy forms and the intent of policy wasn't forms weren't necessarily clear was entirely unexpected. It wasn't actually unexpected since we've been talking about it from the life side for 20 years. Quite, quite. And so <laughs> making sure that intent is clear before something happens is valuable for everyone, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Going back to inertia again, isn't it? The natural inertia, uh, particularly as a broker, would be to say, let's leave this silent because I don't want to open this huge can of worms. Thank you very much. Quite. <laughs> and the issue for us was that it wasn't a small can of worms. <laughs> No, dear, we've all been there. You know, my days of broker would have been Y2K or it was um, electromagnetic fields. Oh, gosh, yes, yes, yes. General liability for electricity right. utilities, right. particularly. We seem to have forgotten about that one. That has, I'm sure it'll come back. Yeah, and mobile phones was the other one. Oh, yeah, it? mobile yeah. phones giving you brain cancer, I think it was the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> but there you are. Well, we've mentioned cyber. We might as well get on with it. Yeah. Um, you've sponsored cyber cat bonds yep. and added to them. Yep. So does that give you a lot of confidence that? this market's maturing, that there's a validation of some of the modelling behind there, that some of these third-party investors are saying, who've over 30 years have managed to get comfortable with the level of modelling behind the science behind hurricane risk and earthquake risk and other things. And now that you think they're getting comfortable enough with cyber to say, this is great, this is another string to my bow, this is something I believe pricing's right, that the structures are right, and that what we are ensuring, we think we've got it right, and that we think these events are going to be about this size and etc. So we know where we are. 
Yes, we sponsored a private bond this time last year. We did the 144A at the end of last year. A pair of ours did the same thing around about the same time, and we understand there are a couple more in the offing. And I think that's fabulous news for the cyber market. As we've talked about for a while, we all know that cyber has accumulation risk in the same way that property has accumulation risk. We need to be able to hedge it and deal with it in the same way that we do on the property side. And so we need a reinsurance market that can help us do that. And we need alternative capital that can help us do that. And the fact that there are hundreds of millions of dollars of limit now placed for cyber in the ILS market, I think is brilliant news. And we want to build on that as Beasley and as a market. And I think you're right, Mark, it is a reflection that third-party vendor modeling is beginning to reach a stage where third-party investors can understand it and make sense of it and make sense of what it's trying to say and what the assumptions are behind it and therefore put a price and a structure to it. I'll note that when we've done these things, that modeling has also been accompanied by quite a lot of due diligence on how we run our book and how we price, how we portfolio manage, how we do claims. So it's not just looking at the models and pricing it. There's also additional due diligence about us because we are at an earlier stage, I think, 30 years earlier than on the property side. But these are very, very encouraging steps towards a maturing cyber market. And you know we've been shouting about this for a while. And I was delighted that we managed to do it. Another thing that gives confidence is, especially when you have multiple vendor models with different methodologies, and they end up coming up with similar numbers, which is a nice thing, because it's almost a way of proving vendor A was correct. If vendor B uses a completely different method to get to the similar answer, then that's quite nice. Because before, there would have been huge variance. And there still is quite some variance, but it's a lot less than it was. And people are beginning to understand what the differences are and, and why those differences manifest and then can interpret that. And these are all steps we need to make. Yeah. And on the more traditional reinsurance, excessive loss, obviously, yep. you know, we have a standard. The development model of insurance would be, you know, you'd start proportional and then as you get more sophisticated, you go excessive loss. Is that traditional reinsurance market there as well? It's interesting that the headlines have been about the ILS market, but is there a, now a developing standard treaty CAT XL market for yes. cyber? Yes, there is. So we, we buy some cyber CAT traditional reinsurance as well, and we're looking to grow that and help that market grow. You're right, the bulk of the reinsurance sold is proportional because that's characteristic of a maturing market, but there is also a, a growing XL market, and that's crucially important. And I'm relatively confident that that will also continue to grow. Another sign of the, the growing maturity of the market is, well, I did a podcast recently with James Burns of CFC. They're putting right. together this UK Cyber Monitoring Centre yep. initiative. Are you looking to support this kind of national hurricane centre for cyber? I think it could have some value. I think it needs to be genuinely independent and it needs to have a global view because unlike weather events, cyber events can manifest They come from anywhere, everywhere, don't they? they? Everywhere. Yeah, so potentially, depending on how they're set up, how independent they are, and how uh, holistic their view is. Excellent. Well, it's all under construction this year, so, well, you heard it here first. Thank you. There's something we always get excited about every year, and there's not really much logic to it necessarily, but last year was the year of AI, when it finally entered the public imagination, I suppose, at some point in, in the first half of last year when ChatGPT was sort of everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, it entered the public consciousness. Let's have that discussion about AI. Obviously, you pioneered many light-touch or streamlined underwriting, you seem to be looking yep. at these strategies to see if they can work, how can you make them work. How far do you think AI could take underwriting? Do you think there could conceivably be some underwriting that is AI only and not by human hand? Well, I think there already is, isn't there? In certain parts of the I market. I suppose, you know, if you're buying motor insurance, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it, it's just out of a book, isn't it? Well, not a book, but it's largely algorithmic. So yeah, I, th I think the development of AI 
into large language model capability is seismic in terms of the impact that it could have. And we're very excited about it. We're aware of the risks that it can present from an underwriting perspective. So we're sort of looking at that as well. We're also aware of the risks that it can present as a user of AI. So it's not without risk, but I think it can really revolutionize how insurance is done. And there are sort of two themes to that. One, I think it can help generate new insight into risk, which can only be a good thing. Could be spotting things to say, goodness me, we've been doing this for 30 years and we haven't noticed. Exactly. You know, that's all good. And the more insight we have into the risk, the better we can do our job. And so that's one furrow that we're ploughing. I think the other one is that it can have a real impact on the way insurance is administered. It remains an intensely overcomplicated process, not a very efficient process and not a very fast process. And I think AI and the way that it's evolving can really help to transform that. And that is really, really exciting. Because of all your regulatory reporting and all the things you think that are a huge pain. Yeah, so we're running half a dozen experiments at the moment to see how it can cope with various processes that we do from operational processes to how can it summarise documents and wade through vast amounts of material and produce the key points of them. So we're interested to see how those experiments go. And, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to utilise a lot of that over the next couple of years. Is the main use would be to increase the, the skill and productivity of underwriters, i.e. that you've got this sort of indefatigable assistant, sort of like having a really smart PhD intern, and you don't just get them for the summer holiday. <laughs> yeah. uh, that someone who's very smart and obviously never gets tired and is presenting you with or triaging perhaps your flow of business, that kind of thing. Yeah. So from an insight perspective, I, I very much see it as an enabler and something that can help the underwriters. Take a step back. We're in the specialty insurance business and the specialty insurance business you know, one of the characteristics of that business is that it is newer, changeable, complicated, and all very volatile. And so I think whilst that remains the case, and there is that uncertainty and that changeability to it, there will be a limit to how much AI can take on. We will always require judgment. As we sit here today, I think it's more about how can we improve the insights that the underwriters are able to see and then use their judgment rather than replacing the underwriting. Yeah, if you've got a 20,000 word submission, could do a really good job of pulling out the key points. Exactly. That's sort of what the broker's supposed to do, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure we'll see how brokers implement AI, because, and that's going to be even more interesting. Yeah, but it? they can also look for different ways that the risk may be correlated or you know, di- different insights as to what, what can drive exposure and so on and so forth, all of which can help the underwriting process. But within that specialty world where things are different and changing, I think it's more a case of improving rather than replacing. You mentioned the sort of caveats of things that you need to be wary of. What are you most wary of when you're looking to implement AI? Are you just worried about getting something spectacularly wrong? There are various risks that have been discussed with AI around hallucination, drift, inadvertent discrimination, IP, privacy. There's lots and lots of risks there around IP that we need to be very aware of, both when we're underwriting and when we're using And those risks are still emerging. And so there's lots of stuff you have to be on top of and thinking about. But that is not to belie the potential power that they have and the use that they can have for us. So we just need to make sure we do both. We've been talking for the last four or five years with a growing consensus around the way the market deals with what's now being described as non-financial misconduct. Um, We've had some prominent cases last year, 2023. We seem to have come a really long way culturally in terms of the attitude. And I think there's largely a consensus that the market agrees on where it wants to go. I would want your opinion on whether some of the disciplinary procedures and some of those structures, have they kept up with our changing attitudes? 
some of those structures are really designed for financial misconduct, not non-financial misconduct. Perhaps back in the old days, you'd have disciplinary board papers that you could read. It would be very clear about someone was grossing up or writing ton of policies or whatever it was. And we could all learn those lessons. But now we have situations where we can't learn anything other than a headline because everything seems to be not in public. There's a lot to that question as well, isn't there? So because very little is in public, it's very difficult for me to comment. Yes. I'm saying that I think that's a problem. Yes, potentially it is. We also need to be very aware that when you're talking about non-financial misconduct, oftentimes that is not victimless. Of course. And therefore, we need to be very careful about the privacy of people who've been impacted across the piece and to make sure that the right people are protected. And so how do you do that in a public way? There aren't really the mechanisms to do that at the moment. As you started that question with, I think the market has moved on, certainly since I started, in terms of what behaviours are expected of people and what is not acceptable. And yes, probably the way that those disciplinary processes work will need to evolve as culture continues to change. I do think it's very important that if the market is going to continue to do what it needs to do and to evolve in the way it needs to evolve, you need both the right ways to encourage people to act in the right way, but also the right ways to make sure that if they don't, the discipline is there to hold those people to account. I suppose if we, if we don't end up with any kind of jurisprudence that we can read, I suppose we'd say that the answer might be a really comprehensive, almost kind of like a manual of what you can do, what you can't do, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. But it's very difficult to legislate for everything. It is very difficult to legislate for everything. And I don't think there's a perfect answer to that. I think what you want, don't you, from whoever does that, your employer, your regulator, a judge or jury, what you want is clarity of what is acceptable or not and consistency of how that's done, just as you would in any process. And you have to trust that that's what your employer or regulator or whatever will do. And if you don't get that consistency, that's where things get a, a bit more difficult. Adrian, thank you very much. Yes, this is a really difficult question. I don't think there are any simple answers, but thank you very much for contributing. No, no. Good to see you again. Yes. Well, hopefully we'll be speaking this time next year. Look forward to it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.